Well, my name is uh, Andrew and uh, I'm part of the team here at C3 and uh, I want to give you a really warm welcome. I'm trying to find my place in the Bible where I'm going to read from. And um, we're going to carry on in our series called The uh, Red Letter People where we're looking at some of the words that, that Jesus spoke and some of the words that are recorded, if you like, uh, in the Bible. And I want to really get straight into it this morning. So if you have your Bible, let's uh, turn to Matthew 14. This is a well-known piece of scripture. It's about Jesus walking on the water, but also Peter walking on the water. Matthew 14, and we're going to start from verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was so great. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. You know, we need to stop sometime and start of kind of imagining what that actually was like. This wasn't a little milk pond. This was Jesus walking on the lake. Where, but it was so kind of strong, the wind, that it was buffeting against the, the boat. But Jesus was walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, let me come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. Do you know, have you ever thought what your main aim in life is? If you had to summarize in a kind of pithy saying or a sentence, what would you say the main purpose of your life is? Now, over the summer holidays, I'd thought about that quite a lot. What was my main aim in life? And, and I came up with this. My main aim in life is this, to put a smile on God's face. To put a smile on God's face. Now, I know that you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, actually, Andrew, that's not exactly an awe-inspiring, life-challenging goal. But I just want to unpack it a little bit. And you see that it's perhaps not as shallow as you think possibly I am. You know, it's, it's deeper than it actually appears. Have you noticed that when you please someone, they smile? Have you noticed that? When you please someone, they smile. It very rarely do you please someone and they actually get all miserable on you. Nah, when you please someone, they smile. And I want to put a smile on Jesus' face. I want to put a smile on my Savior's face. I want to put a smile on God's face. How do I do that? I live a life that pleases them. And when I please my God, when I live a life that pleases my God, guess what? He smiles down on me. He smiles down on me. So you're saying, well, Andrew, how do you live a life that really pleases God? Well, in the scripture, it says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you flip that around, if you reverse that, it says this, with faith, it is possible to please God. 
So if you're going to really please God, then you and I have to what? We have to live by faith. Now let me say something very clearly from the beginning. There is a difference between God loving us and God being pleased with us. There really is. God cannot love us any more than he does today. He can't love us any more than he he did even before we were saved. God is love. He can't help but love us. But that doesn't mean that he's always pleased with us. Ask any parent whose child, for example, has a meltdown in Tesco's. Do you know, at that point in time, the, the, the mother or the father are not looking down, smiling at the kid. Or when one of your children sort of goes to nursery and bites another child or pushes someone over, you're not pleased then, are you? You're not smiling then, are you? But if I asked you, do you still love them? What would you say? Of course I still love them. That's your default, isn't it? As parents, to love your children. And that's God's default. He can't help but love us. But if we want to put a smile on God's face, then I want to say this to you this morning. We need to be a people who live by faith. Who live by faith. I believe faith is the currency of his now kingdom here on earth. It's not the dollar. It's not the pound. It's not the euro. It's faith. It's faith. When you're in heaven, you won't need faith. What are you going to faith for in heaven? There's no sin, no sickness, no Satan, no sorrow. Only the Savior. You'll be perfected. You'll be like under Christ. There'll be no need for faith in heaven. No, faith is a currency that we have to hear, use here and now on earth as we travel through this world. It's by faith that we trust God, isn't it, for his forgiveness and, and the great gift and the wondrous gift of his salvation. It's by grace that we get hold of his power and his provision and his promises for in our life. It's by faith that we walk a life of security, believing that in Christ Jesus we have everything that we need for life and godliness. It's a life of faith that we leave, believing that one day, one day, he is going to come back and take us to be with him for eternity. That's the life of faith. That's the now faith that we require today. Let me tell you, faith is a big issue. Faith is a big issue. But don't be put off by that statement because we have a big God. See, the strength of my faith is only determined by the object in which I have faith in, and we have a big God, don't we? Faith is a big issue. And I believe it's the key to putting a smile on God's faith. So I want to draw out a a few lessons about faith from this story that I read to you this morning. But before I do that, I just want to kind of go back a little bit and give you a bit of background. At the time of this story of Jesus and Peter walking on the water, uh, Jesus was actually on the northwestern shore of of Lake Galilee. And um, previous to that, He'd actually, earlier on in the day, um, he fed 5,000 people, or 5,000 men, the scripture says, with five loaves and two fish. Five loaves and two fish. Now, a lot of scholars actually believe if you counted the women and children that was there, it was likely to be that those five uh, loaves and two fish probably had to feed 15,000 people. Imagine for a moment that you were Jesus' disciple. Just imagine, just for a moment, that you were there. Just imagine for the moment that you witnessed that great miracle. I thought about yourself, but I'd be in awe. I'd be overwhelmed by the power and the, and the macro supernatural work that, that Christ could, could do. And the wonderful thing is this. He also 
used the disciples in that miracle. They were part of the miracle. It was the disciples that took the bread and took the fish to these people. And not, a, not, a, not one moment did the bread or that fish run out. And afterwards, they collected so many baskets. It was 12 baskets. They ended up with more at the end than they had in the beginning. I want to tell you, it was a marvelous day, wasn't it? Yeah. Imagine him being there as a disciple. If I had to say to the disciples, on, on a scale of 1 to 10, where was your faith level? I reckon they would have said, on that day, it was 20. It was 20. It would have been off the Richter scale. Mountaintop faith. That's what I call that. Mountaintop faith. You know, there's times in our life where everything seems to go well. You know, even when in the circumstances change and they come against us, you know, we pray and somehow or other, God miraculously steps in almost immediately and everything works out for good. Do you know, there are times in our life like that, rare times for me anyway, but there are times like that when we have that mountaintop faith. But you and I know that life is not always like that. Sometimes you have to come down from the mountain. Sometimes we're in the valley. Sometimes we have to face real life-changing issues that don't go away quickly, that stick to us, and sometimes can almost feel as if they're going to overwhelm us. Do you know what? I believe that there's some lessons that we can only learn at the bottom of the mountain. Lessons that we could never learn if we stay at the top of the mountain. And I believe Jesus understood this. So the scripture tells us that after feeding 5,000 people, this is what the scripture says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him onto the other side. That word made there is a very critical word because when I actually looked it up, it actually means uh, forced or coerced or compelled. Jesus ordered them, in other words, to get into the boat and go on the other side. He said, Implicitly, I will join you later. And I suspect that when those disciples got into that boat, they were still buzzing. I mean, they've just seen Jesus feed 15,000 people, and they were part of that miracle. They were buzzing. I can just imagine them talking about all those baskets that had been left over. Can you remember that? the face of that woman on the front row? Just, you know, she was overwhelmed by, by the goodness and the power of Jesus. I bet they were absolutely overwhelmed by it. However, and there's always an however in our walk with God, isn't there? You know, one minute we're at the top, the next minute we're at the bottom. However, as the disciples got into the boat and started to go and sail across the lake, what happened was an almighty storm blew up. And it seems as if that storm started around 8 p.m. in the evening and after approximately eight or nine exhausting hours, the disciples were still trying to row against the, the storm and they were stuck in the middle of, of the lake. I suspect then they were weary, they were exhausted, they were chilled, they were, they, were, they were cold, they were wondering where Jesus was. And I suspect that if you asked them at that point in time to rate their faith, I don't think it would have been 20. I think it's more likely to be almost zero. Life's like that, isn't it? That's what happens to us so often. One minute we're on the mountaintop, everything going well. And the next minute we're not just in a valley, but we're in a ravine, we're in a deep storm. So let's look at a few points in this story in relation to faith. I want to say this, if you really want to put a smile on God's face, then you need to recognize that the quality of our faith will be proved in the storms of life. The quality of our faith 
will be proved in the storms of life. Do you know, I believe that Jesus does his best work in the midst of storms. What was really striking when I read this story was the fact that these disciples were, in fact, obeying the very instructions of Jesus. You know, they weren't stepping out of Jesus' will. Jesus had commanded them, compelled them, ordered them to go across to the other side. They, if you like, they were walking on the infallible word of Christ, and yet the storm came into their lives. It wasn't a storm of their own making. They were obeying God. They were doing what God, uh, Christ had asked him, them to do, but a storm came. Have you ever been in a storm that wasn't of your own making? I've been in lots of storms that have not been of my own making. Perhaps you've experienced a job loss as a result of some restructuring that's gone on in your company. It's not that you're a bad worker, but they've restructured and you've lost a job. Perhaps you, you found yourself in financial difficulties simply because you've been made redundant. It had nothing to do with your performance. It was the fact that, you know, things changed and you were made redundant. Perhaps you became sick, totally out of the blue. Perhaps someone close to you passed away, someone that you, were re you really loved, someone that you really kind of cared for, that, you, you know, and, and now you, you feel absolutely wrecked because of it. Perhaps you'd started off on your God-given destiny, just like these guys did, going across the lake, and suddenly a storm comes out of nowhere. You don't even know why it's come, you don't even know where it's come, but you know it's buffeting you. It's not a great place to be, but the world is like that, isn't it? The Bible tells us that it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, God never promises us an easy life. But I want to ask you a question. What is your default setting when you face storms that are not of your own making? What's your default setting? Now, let me tell you what the disciples' default settings were, was. Interesting enough, before Jesus actually came on the water and, 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 and introduced himself... Not once did they call upon his name. Not once did they ask him for help. Not once did their faith arise and say, Lord God, you're able to do something. Come and do something. No. Their default was not to ask God. Their default was to rely on themselves. To rely on themselves. In fact, God was not only not their first choice. In fact, God wasn't even their last choice. And how often... Does that apply to our lives? How often when we're in a storm, instead of rushing to God, we try to work it out ourselves? I want to ask you a question. What is your default setting when you're in a storm? What is your default setting when you're in a storm that's not of your own making? Do you simply work harder? You know, this is, this is where I fall down often. Do you think you just work a bit harder, a bit more grit, a bit more graft, and, you know, I'll make my way out of this storm? Perhaps you, you apply your intellect and, and you say, do you know what, I'm going to think this through, I'm going to plan things, and surely this will bring me out of the storm. Now let me tell you, those things in and of themselves are not bad things, but there are some storms that your intellect and your hard work will never get you out of. No matter what, how hard they thought about the, the storm that they were in, no matter how hard they worked, I want to tell you, they would never have got out of that storm without the help of Jesus. Perhaps you go in a bit of a panic and just hope somehow or other you scramble out of the storm. You scramble out of the situation. I think there's a lot of Christians that do this. They don't really sit down. They don't really kind of get serious with Jesus. They just hope somehow or other that something will happen and they'll scramble their way out. Or perhaps you, you're the kind of person that kind of whinges and moans and groans when things go wrong. 
You say, oh, God, this is too painful. God, you asked me to do something. I'm stepping out and doing the very thing you asked me to do, you know, but you're not there to help me. Do you know what? I'm quitting. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. That's enough. I'm on my way. Do you know what I want to say to you this morning, guys? that Jesus does his best work often in the storms of life. I believe that Jesus was trying to teach these disciples two things, two facets, if you like, of faith, two aspects of faith, faith other than that mountaintop faith that they really enjoyed earlier on. And the first thing I believe that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples was this, something I would call personal faith. Now, I'm not talking about simply that personal faith that we have in Christ Jesus that saves us. I'm talking about a faith that believes that our God is going to work for us. That he, he's not just going to work for others, but he's going to work for, for us. He's not just going to work for me. He's going to work for you. He's not going to just work for me. He's going to work for you in your life. That's what I mean by personal faith. You know, it's one thing to have faith, isn't it, for someone else in their storm than it is to have faith when you're going through your own storm. It's easier to pray, I think, at least this this is true of me, guys. I find it easier to pray for people when they're going through a storm, but when I'm going through a storm, it feels somehow much more intensive, much more real, and it feels bigger. It feels bigger altogether. It really does. I've prayed for the sick, believing that they can get well. I've prayed, I've prayed for people who have lost jobs and, and, and their lives have been in a mess, and I've believed that Jesus could sort them out. I've prayed those prayers, believing that God was able to do it. I've prayed for people whose marriages are falling apart and whose relationships are, are kind of awful, and I've prayed, believing that Christ can do it. But what about us? What about ourselves? What about when we are sick? What about when we are in the storm? What about when we've lost a job? What about what happens to us when we are actually in situations where our relationships are just melting away and falling apart? Do we have that kind of faith, that personal faith, that Jesus Christ is so interested in us that he's still going to meet us there and meet our needs? I want to be honest. I find it much harder to pray with faith for myself than for others. Do you know what? I don't believe that this is uncommon. In fact, I believe that disciples had had a faith which actually believed for the feeding of 15,000 people but couldn't believe for themselves. That's amazing, isn't it? They just witnessed Christ feeding 15,000 people but they couldn't believe for themselves. And I believe that Jesus therefore designed a faith-building program to grow their personal faith and he called it a storm. He called it a storm. David Viner in a book called Battling the Inner Dummy, I love that title, uh, talks about Jesus using what he calls controlled trauma to bring disciples to a real understanding of faith. Controlled trauma. Now, the important word there is controlled. Listen, Jesus will never test us beyond that which we can endure. Okay? So it's controlled. He's got his hand, if you like, on, on the thermostat of our life. He knows exactly what we can cope with. But God often uses storms to move us towards faith in him and his plans and his purposes for our lives. Do you know, in our storm, we need to remember that Jesus has no favorites. He's as much interested in you as he is in me. You know, he loves you as much as he loves the person sitting next to you. He wants to bless you as much as the person that you've been praying for. He's interested in you becoming an overcomer, not just that person five rows down on the left from where you're sitting. He's interested in you. You have a father that loves you. You have someone who wants you to thrive. You have someone who says you lack no good thing in him. It's you, you, you. 
Now, is that selfish? No. God is our Father. He wants to bless us with good things. It says in the Scriptures, who would, as a father, when the child asks for bread, will give them stone or a scorpion? No, he wants to give us good things. But he wants to give you good things this morning. In the storm, he wants to meet your needs. That's what I'm talking about, personal faith. And these disciples need to have that personal faith. It's no good having that mountain faith when you're in a storm. You need the personal faith. A personal faith. And I believe that God is calling us to develop that personal faith. He says, in the storm, call on him for your needs. And in faith, believe that he's going to meet your needs. Doesn't stop you praying for others. Doesn't stop you doing everything. But in the storm, I want to tell you, I want to know that my God is interested in me. And he's able to keep me. He's able to keep me from falling, keep me from sinking. So God often allows storms to come in our life to teach us that we require personal faith in him. I think secondly, I believe that Jesus was teaching uh, his disciples something else, another facet of faith. I'm going to call this uh, a permanent object faith. Now, I want to unpack that in a way that hopefully helps, to, helps you and I to understand it a bit more. Child development experts um, claim this, that when a child is very, very young and they drop something and they can't see it, they automatically assume that it's gone forever. And that's why they scream, that's why they shout, that's why they get, you know, uh, distraught. But as that child grows up, and then they begin to realize that if they drop something and it goes out of sight, it's actually not gone forever, it's still there. And so they become less stressful, less panicky, panically, panicky, whatever the word is, and less angry. And, and, and the psychologists call this object permanence. And I believe that this is the kind of faith that, that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples here. What, in short, he was saying was this. He wanted to teach them that even though he appears far off, even though sort of he appears out of reach, even though he appears absent, even though he appears not to be in the immediate presence, guess what? He is still there with them in the midst of their storm. Permanent object faith. You know, previously... Jesus and the disciples were in a storm similar to this. They might have been in the same boat. They were certainly on the same lake, Lake Galilee. But that time, Jesus was in their boat. And when things got difficult, they cried out to him. Why? Because he was there in the boat. There was a, an immediate presence of Jesus with them. This time, Jesus was not in the boat. He was up in the, on the mountain praying for them. He was not in the boat at all. I suspect they probably thought, you know what, he's forgotten about us. I suspect they thought, you know, why hasn't he calmed the storm like he did last time when we were in the boat? Perhaps they thought, God, he's not even aware probably of the predicament that we, were in, that they, that we are in. I want to ask you, have you been through times when Jesus seems so distant from you? I have. Be honest, have there been times when you've come into this meeting... And you've seen people worshiping with their hands up high. And you felt as if you're on a different planet from them. Have you, have you come into a meeting and you know that a great word was preached, but it just seems to bounce off you? Have, have you come into fellowship and you feel, do you know what? I, I can't feel the, pro the presence of Jesus at all. And sometimes you get so discouraged and, and God seems a million miles away. You feel, as if he, you feel as if he doesn't care for you, that he's forgotten you, that he's abandoned you and not interested in you. I want to say to you guys this morning, 
That's a lie from the enemy, to, and it's there to undermine your faith in your Savior. It's a lie from the enemy, and it's designed to undermine your faith in your Savior. Now, my Bible tells me this. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He says, even when you go through the waters, and we will go through waters, he says, I will be there. When you go through the fire, I will be there. Listen to what it says in Psalm 39 this morning. I, I read this this morning. And it simply says this, where can I go from your spirit? Like, and there's nowhere that you and I can go that Jesus doesn't know where we are, doesn't see us, and isn't present. Listen, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make the, my bed in the depths, you are there. If, if, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. Even darkness is as light unto you. That's the authorized version. I slipped between two there. Even darkness is as light unto you. Listen, there's no situation, no predicament, no trouble, no, no matter what the world speaks into you about it, where Jesus is not present and wants to do us good. The enemy will always say, do you know what? He's disinterested. He's not there. You know, it's a kind of flight of fantasy. But the Bible tells us that he is there with us and that he is for us. Listen, Jesus knew exactly what was happening to those disciples in that boat. The Bible tells us he was on the hillside. He actually looked down and saw them in that boat and then realized exactly where they were on, on the Lake Galilee. He knew exactly what was happening. Listen, there's a limit to our natural talents. Our natural talents will take us so far. But, you know, we need faith. And we don't just need that mountain top faith when everything is going well, when you know I haven't got to persevere, when you haven't got to push through. You know, we, we don't just need that mountain top faith, but we need that personal object permanent faith. That's the kind of faith that will get us through the storm. That's the kind of faith that will put a smile on Christ Jesus' face. And that's the kind of faith that we need as we travel through the valley experiences that are part and parcel of the world that we live in. That's real faith. Real faith. Secondly, I want to say this. If we're going to put a smile on God's face and, and live by faith, then we need to understand that we need to feed our faith. And how do we feed our faith? Faith fe feeds on revelation. Faith feeds on revelation. Verse 27 says this, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Despite the fact that they never cried out, despite the fact that they never uh, once asked for help, Jesus takes the initiative, walks across water, walks across all those waves. It wasn't a milk pond that he was walking on. It was, it was a, a, a storm that he was walking on. And he comes to them, and he actually declares uh, some of the most jaw-dropping, encouraging words that you ever read in Scripture. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. These disciples have been buffeted by the storms. They've been shaken. They've been sort of, you know, couldn't sort of make any progress. They were at the end of their physical uh, strength. And Jesus comes along and comforts them by this, focusing their faith on who he really is. It is I. He focuses his faith, their faith, on who he really is. It is I. Now, unfortunately, the translation, it is I, does, a, does us a bit of a disservice. Actually, when you read the original in the Greek, I'm not fluent in Greek. Um, hence, as you'll see now when I try to pronounce these few words that are coming up, the Greek uses the odd expression, ego emi, ego emi, 
which simply means this, I am, I am, I am. So the Scripture should read, take courage, it is I am. It is I am. Do not be afraid. Now let me say, the implications of Jesus using that phrase to describe himself would not be lost on the disciples. It would not be lost on the disciples. The disciples knew that this was the way that God declared himself to Moses from the burning bush. When Moses asked, you know, who is it? He says, I am. I am. Actually means that, you know, the self-sufficient, eternal, omnipresent God is there. In other words, the I am was spoken to Moses. It actually, it actually was saying to Moses, or he was actually saying to Moses, God was actually saying to Moses, not listen, I was there in the past, I'm there in the future, and I am with you now. I am with you now. In short, in this story, Jesus was simply saying this, if, if, if you want to sort of grow your faith, if you want to step out in courage, then you need to look to me, because I am the great I am. And as you look to me, take hold of the faith that grows from the, 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 the knowledge of who I am. And the I am, Jesus Christ, is still the same today. He never changes. He never changes. And he's as committed to you as he was to Peter on that day, that, that Peter walked on the water. The I am, the self-sufficient, omnipresent, eternal God, the one who's always there to help us when we're in our, when our difficulties, to lift us up, to forgive us, to support us, and to make a way out for us. I want to tell you, the I am, Jesus Christ, is still here today. Yes. And he's operating in my life, and he wants to operate in your life as well. We have a great God. Listen, no matter what the world says about your storms, no matter what your friend says about your storms, no matter what torrent of, of stuff that's coming against you, I want to say to you this, the I am, the I am is more than sufficient. He is more than sufficient. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. I love the description of Jesus. Most of my favorite description of Jesus is this, is that in him is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Isn't that amazing? The I am, the fullness of the, of, of, of the Godhead in bodily form is with us, is with us. Do you know, the I am is so great that he can actually turn your troubles into his glory. That's what he does. Time and time again, he, he turns your trouble, your storm in, into his glory. Do you know, I read one commentary and it said this. The very waters that threatened to overwhelm Peter was the very waters that later he walked on. Yeah. Hey, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. The very thing that the enemy has designed to bring you down, I want to tell you, you will actually walk on it in victory in Christ Jesus. Listen, there's a principle here as well. Do you know, the, the comfort that Peter received from that, in that storm and the comfort that we receive when we are going through that storm, and by that word comfort, it's not a, a, a kind of wishy-washy word. You know, comfort is everything that we need. Comfort is about strength. It's about provision. It's about power. It's about direction. Basically, it's everything that we need in that storm that God gives us. Guess what? We can then use it with other people in their storms, and it doesn't only therefore bless us as our, grace, as our faith increases, but it also blesses other people, and guess what? It brings glory to God. That's why Paul could say, count it pure joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials. Hey, we're destined to victory, man. We are destined for victory. Dwayne Bonker says this, we are condemned to victory. We cannot do anything but be victorious when we feed our faith on the reality of who Christ really is. Feed your faith. 
Let God open up his heart to you. See him for who he is. Expect great things from him. And I want to say that your faith will rise. Feed your faith on the reality of who Jesus really is. Thirdly, I want to say this. If you're going to put a smile on God's face, see, that little phrase of mine for my purpose in life, it's a bit deeper now, really. You know, I'm not as shallow as perhaps you thought I was. You know, going to put a, if you're going to put a smile on Jesus' face then, and live by faith, then we need to do this. We need to make sure that our faith takes Jesus' word seriously. Or shall I say personally. Taking Jesus' word personally. Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come to you in the water. Listen to this. Four-letter word. Come. That's all Jesus said. Come. Come. That four-letter word, come, absolutely changed Peter's life. It got him out of the boat. It got him to stand out from the crowd in the boat. And it started him on a great, awesome adventure of walking on the water. One word. One word. Do you know, friends, we need to take the word of God really seriously. We need to take it personally for ourselves. You know, so many people have said to me, do you know, I just need a word from God. And I said, read the Bible. There's plenty of them in there. That's the mind of Christ. Just read the Bible and take it personally. Let it infiltrate your spirit. Expect God to do something in it. Do you know, the most reliable guide for your life is the word of God. Is the word of God. Take it personally. Do you know, sometimes I think Christians are in danger of becoming mystics. They want a little shiver down the spine. They want the wonder, but they don't want the word of God. And yet it's the word of God that produces faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? By the word of God. We need to be a people of the word. We need to be a people of the word. We need to be people who take this word seriously and take it personally. That when we open it, we should have an expectation that my God, my Father, who loves me, is going to speak to me in power through his word. Through his word. John Ortberg, uh, sorry, John Ortberg said this. It's possible to make courageous decisions that are totally and utterly stupid. It's true. I know people have made shipwreck of their lives because they haven't gone to the Word of God, because they stepped out in presumption. You know, Jesus does not want us to step out in presumption. He wants us to step out in faith generated by the Word of God. That's what he wants us to do. Let me tell you, Peter, who was pretty impulsive at times, wasn't he? He wasn't going to walk on that water until he had a word from Jesus about it. He wasn't going to be presumptuous. He knew he would have sunk if Jesus had said, stay, and he'd come. But Jesus said, come. And I tell you what, he started to walk on water. Do you know, passion, enthusiasm, and zeal is good. I'm not knocking that, but it's not enough. We're not told to walk by passion. We're told to walk by faith. We're not told to take leaps of, uh, we're told to take leaps of faith, not leaps of zeal, not leaps of, fa- of, of, of passion. No, God wants us to make leaps of faith. Do you know, when we hear the authentic voice of Jesus, it is creative and powerful. When we take it personally, it is creative and powerful. It actually changed the life of Peter. It got him out of that boat. That one word, come, that four-letter word, come, created something in Peter that he, would never, he had, hadn't possessed before. It created this. It created courage. That word, come, created courage. It created enough courage for him to step out from the crowd. The rest stayed in the boat. The rest stayed in the boat. They didn't say a word. They just stayed there. But, but Peter walked on that word. Do you know, John Maxwell says this. The opposite of courage is not cowardice, but conformity. 
oh, I understand what he, what he says by, means by that. It's so easy, isn't it, to be squeezed into the mold of this world under the expectation of the people that are speaking into your life. You know, we need a word from God that creates some courage in us. If Peter listened to them, he would never become a water walker. He'd never have experienced the miraculous supernatural power of walking on the water. That word come meant that he was able to seize the opportunity of a much more adventurous life in, uh, with his Savior. Do you know, sometimes we fool ourselves by thinking that if we don't instantly respond, that somehow or other Jesus is going to kind of, you know, give us another chance further down the line. And we all quote Jonah. I want to tell you, there's no other occasion that Peter walked on the water. No other occasion. That was his only chance. But the word come was so powerful that he created with him a faith to seize the opportunity that Christ was presenting him uh, that, that, that day. And I believe, friends, that when God speaks to us, don't delay, we should just simply obey because it might not come around again. Listen, faith took Peter to places where the unbelief of others could not go. It took him into a life of adventure. But you notice with me this thing very quickly before I move on to my final point. Actually, the emphasis of Peter's ask was not to walk on water. The emphasis of Peter's ask, if you read it, is that he should come to him, that he should come to Jesus. If it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. The emphasis was on coming to Jesus. The walking on the water request was only there because that's where Jesus happened to be. But his main desire was to come to Jesus. Why? Because he knew that Jesus was the source of all things. He knew that in him, he lived and had his being. He knew that in Christ Jesus, we lack no good thing. He knew that he was the source of all things. And nothing, no circumstances, or anybody, those in the boat, was going to stop Peter coming to the Lord Jesus Christ that day. Listen, Peter the rock took the word of God, come personally. And guess what? The rock floated. The rock floated. Listen, no matter what's going off in your life, when you come to, the word, come to Christ and you, and you find a word that he kind of births in, into you, I want to tell you, take it personally, and who knows, you will walk on the things that at the moment are stubbornly, seemingly against you. That, that, that's the kind of faith that we need. And it comes as we feed ourselves and take on the word of God and take it personally. Finally, I just want to say this. If we're going to put a, a, a smile on Jesus' face, then we need to have a faith that perseveres, faith that perseveres. The problem with faith is that it leaks. Problem with faith is that it leaks. One minute, Peter was walking on water. That means that water was solid. It's amazing, isn't it? Water was solid. You know, even Moses didn't do this. For Moses, God parted the sea and he had to walk on dry land. Now, for Peter, he was walking on it. He was walking on it. This was a miracle, he was walking on it. But the next minute, he was sinking. Fear rose up in his heart and his feet began to sink. Fear sinks as quicker than any other thing. Faith leaks. Faith leaks when our problems that we've been praying for doesn't, don't sort of disappear quickly. You know, that, that person that you've been praying for, you know, Andrew, I've been praying for him for a week now. And, and do you know what? He's not been saved yet. You know, I've been, I've been praying for, uh, you know, for someone to be, to, be, to be healed, you know, but it's not, he's not healed yet. She's not healed yet. And what happens? Faith begins to leak. And faith begins to leak when problems come and then they get worse. Have you noticed that? I don't know about yourself, but often in my life, you know, problems come and before long, problems become worse 
and if it can't get any worse, and actually then it comes again, and it's worse and worse and worse, and when that happens, I don't know about yourself, but my faith leaks. My faith leaks. It goes from bad to worse. You don't think it can get any worse, and then it goes even worse, and faith leaks. I want to say the only thing that changed in this story at the point of time of Peter sinking was the fact that Peter took his focus off his Savior. That's all. Took, took his focus off his Savior. Listen, Jesus is in the midst of your situation, and all he wants you to do is to keep yourself focused on him. Don't look at the problem. The problem will always swamp you. You know, the problem should live in the shadow of who Jesus is, not the problem casting a shadow over who Jesus is. It should be the other way around. So he begins to think, and what happens? He cries out, Lord, save me. And this is a lovely piece of scripture here. Jesus immediately, it says, reaches down and lifts him up by the hand. Riches him up by the hand. Now, listen, we're talking about the King of Kings and the Lord of Heaven. He could have beamed him up above the water and put him straight in the boat without any hassle. But no, he chose instead to, to stretch down and lift him up by the hand. This was an intensely personal and intimate rescue. Intensely personal and, infinite, uh, and intimate rescue. Now, I don't want you to miss the parallel here. Listen, we have a God who stepped into humanity. He took on our flesh. He became like us and lived amongst us. He rubbed shoulders with us. He touched people around him. He lived a spotless, sinless life. He went to the cross and he died for us. He, he died there for our sickness, for our sin, and for our shame, for, for the, sin, uh, the selfishness of mankind. But you know what? And we sang it this morning. Death could not hold him. Death could not hold him. The spotless one, the holy one, the totally righteous one. Death had no claim on him, and he rose again from the dead. And because he's alive and on the throne, when we are in difficulties, guess what? We have a God who will himself, because he is alive and he loves us, is able to reach down and personally lift us up. I think that's a marvelous picture of, of the love and commitment and the power that Jesus has when we go through difficult times. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 5.10. And the God of all grace, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Do you know what? I never pray for an angel to, to rescue me. I pray for Jesus. I pray for the omnipresent almighty, eternal, I am to come down and rescue me. And because I know he's alive and because I know he understands my plight and because he's been where I've been, I know that he understands me totally that when I cry out, he's going to come and lift me up. That's an amazing thing. That's the kind of saviour we've got. That's his faith-building stuff, isn't it? This is stuff that should move us towards an adventurous life and taking risks in Christ Jesus because even when we fall, he is able to lift us up. And he does it personally. But you know, it doesn't stop there. On the water, something else happens. Jesus didn't just rescue Peter. He instructed Peter. He instructed Peter. He said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Can I just say, he never said this. He didn't say, you of no faith. Where the no faith is were, they were in the boat. The no faith is were in the boat. No, he said to people, you of little faith. Little faith. And yet that faith was enough to get him out of the boat and starting to walk on water. I reckon that as he was approaching Jesus and Jesus seen him exercising his faith and pleasing him, I, I, I'm telling you, Jesus was smiling at Peter. He, he had a smile on his face at Peter. Okay, he did sink, 
he did think when his faith failed him. But nevertheless, I believe that, that Jesus was pleased with Peter. I tell you what, who, who, who do you think he was pleased with most? Those in the boat? Or Peter who got out and actually tries to do something mighty and awesome for his God? I tell you, he was smiling at, at Peter. But do you notice this? The instruction that Peter received was not done when Peter was back in the boat. It was done on the waves. It was a private instruction. You have little faith. Listen, I don't believe for one moment that that was a condemning rebuke from Jesus. Jesus, you just really say, listen, it's like a father instructing his son how to increase faith. How to increase his faith. He was instructing him. Listen, he didn't want him to make that error again, that mistake again. He wanted him to keep his eyes fixed upon the great I am, Jesus Christ. God always deals with us even when he has to correct us with dignity and respect. And if we have to say anything to anybody else, I want to tell you, friends, you need to approach it with the same dignity and, and respect that Jesus approached Peter when he walked on the water. Do you know, we all need to be corrected, don't we? We all need to be corrected. No wonder at the end of this story, when Peter gets in the boat, they all start worshipping, and they all say, you are the Son of God. Their revelation of him was greater than it had ever been. And he says, they say, you are the Son of God. When the band could come up, please. You are the Son of God. Do you know, friends, this evening, ah, sorry, I'm still in the morning, aren't I? Um, this morning, I just want to say to you, let your faith arise. Let your faith arise. We have a good, big God who is a good God, and he has big supernatural plans for us. Do you know what? I want to say this also. It wasn't always just about Peter, this. This was also about the people that Peter was going to meet in the future. I believe that Jesus was prepping Peter so that when the, in the future when he meets certain people, he was going to have the faith that's needed in order to see these people's lives transformed. I believe this was also about the faith that Peter would require on the day of Pentecost when he preached and was believing for 3,000 people to be saved. I believe that God was prepping him there on the boat and increasing his faith so that as we read in the book of Acts, he was believing that even those who fell under his shadow would be healed. This is not about just us. It's about God's plans and purposes for his kingdom that will come as a result of you and I stepping out in personal, object, permanent faith, feeding our faith on the, on, on the revelation of Christ Jesus, persevering through to the very end and taking this word of God into our hearts. We're called to do greater things, aren't we? We're called to do greater things. But we'll only achieve them if we come to Christ, if we really believe who he is if we see him for really who he is it's only then can we step out and we step out in the greatness and his goodness that his greatness and his goodness actually generate the faith in our lives